Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations about Daniel Ellsberg and the case of the Pentagon Papers. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon tapes and founder of NixonTapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. We often hear about the Pentagon Papers, um, and to establish some definition for our audience, um, what what were the Pentagon Papers, who wrote them, and what were its contents? Well, I think this is a it's a fascinating subject, and, and I, I, I want to preface a, a lot of my my remarks by saying that, you know, I, this is a subject that as much as we've we've heard about them and people have a common um, recognition of the Pentagon Papers and, and Daniel Ellsberg and, and other names associated with them, uh, I think this is something where we still don't have a good history of, of any of this. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, you know, there's never really, you know, many of the records of the National Archives have never been released. Um, they've just started that process in the Washington, D.C. area. So I think and Daniel Ellsberg's still alive, for that matter. I mean, he's still active uh, today. Uh, so I think we have a long ways to go. But you know, based on what we know so far, you know, the Pentagon Papers, um, that, was first, that was a name given to them later. Um, they started in 1967. And I, I recently uh, interviewed, spent time talking to two of the living people who worked, um, who were involved at the beginning. So this was a project of the Johnson administration, specifically in the office of Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, and it, it, it started in a very different form. Uh, McNamara had a number of questions about the war up to that point. And it, it, I don't know if the number was 100, but the, the document became known initially as the 100 questions and that McNamara drew up. I think he might have came up with many of the questions on his own. And he assigned his, his staff, his office, to work on the answers. He wanted answers to these 100 questions. And then as the project evolved, um, it, it was never planned to be a big, you know, massive, comprehensive study, but that's what it became. Uh, the McNamara study, it became uh, 40 volumes, 7,000 pages or so, and it was, the, the number of contributors were something like 35 or 40 contributors. The general editor was a guy by the name of Les Gelb, uh, and... Um, Daniel Ellsberg was, was nominally involved in this. Uh, he contributed, I think, a very small section. I mean, just a very, while he's the name most commonly associated overall with the Pentagon Papers, he was a very minor contributor to the Pentagon Papers study. It was uh, compiled in 67, 68, uh, 69. They were still wrapping up in early 69. And I believe the, 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 the final 7,000 pages were were finished something like uh, you know the opening weeks of the Nixon administration, so that it became known later as the Pentagon Papers uh, because it, it was no longer called the McNamara Papers or at one point it was called the Kennedy Johnson Papers, uh, but it became known later as the Pentagon Papers because that was sort of a more inclusive label uh, for the fact that it involved both uh, Johnson officials as well as Nixon officials. You'd mentioned Daniel Ellsberg that he, you know, he wasn't the main figure behind behind the Pentagon Papers, but he's sort of the uh, name that's sort of synonymous with its release. Um, could could you uh, tell us who Daniel Ellsberg was? 
Well, sure. In a thumbnail sketch, um, he was born in, in 1931. Uh, so that tells you he's in his late 80s today and still active. He was a U.S. Marine. He was then an analyst uh, for the Rand Corporation in the late 50s into the mid-60s at its headquarters in Santa Monica. Uh, and Rand had a number of, of, of sensitive uh, government contracts to produce research and papers, and uh, he carried a top-secret clearance throughout all this. He left Rand to go back to the State Department. He spent some additional time in Vietnam uh, working as a special assistant in the, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Uh, he went back to Rand in 67. Um, he was ultimately terminated from Rand. Uh, he, in part, during a kind of, um, you know, he, kinda, he, had, he had a kind of metamorphosis, Ellsberg did, where he went from being very hawkish to being very dovish. That is to say, he started to question the war by 67, uh, around the same time that other government officials did. He left Rand in 70, became a kind of uh, per diem consultant, and went to MIT. So I would say, you know, he, he, was, he was very bright. He had a very a promising career ahead of him. He had an impeccable academic uh, background. He had military experience. He had government experience. He was an analyst. Everybody thought the world of him. And he, he very, uh, by the start of the Nixon administration, he was very quickly becoming very, very anti-war. Let's listen to the first audio. This is a recording on the White House telephone between General Alexander Haig, uh, the military assistant on the National Security Council, and President Nixon on June 13th, 1971. Uh, this is when General Haig first alerts Nixon that the Pentagon Papers have been uh, leaked to the New York Times. But we can get a reading on it. Right, well, Monday afternoon, officially, well, let's wait till then. Fine. Okay. Nothing else of interest in the world? Yes, today? sir. Very significant, this uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that. I see. That, that, I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that, that was leaked out of the Pentagon? Sir, it, uh, the whole study that was done for McNamara and then carried on after McNamara left by Clifford and the Peaceniks over there. This is a devastating uh, security breach of, of the greatest magnitude of anything I've well, ever seen. Well, what, uh, what's being done about it then? I mean, I didn't... Uh, I did we know this was coming out? No, we did not, sir. Uh, yeah. There are just a few copies of this. Well, what about the... Volume report. Well, what about the... Uh, let me ask you this, though. What about the uh, what about Laird? What's he going to do about it? Is uh, well, I uh, now I I just start right at the top and fire some people. I mean, whoever, whatever department it came out of, I'd fire the top guy. Yes, sir. Well, I'm sure it came from defense, and I'm sure it was stolen at at the time of the turnover of the administration. Oh, it's two years old then. I'm sure it is, and they've been holding it for a juicy time, and I think they've thrown it out to affect Hatfield McGovern. That's my own estimate. But it's, it's something that it's a mixed bag. It's a, it's a tough attack on Kennedy. Uh, it shows that the genesis of the war uh, really occurred during yeah. the 61. Yeah, period. that's Clifford. Yeah, I see. And uh, it's brutal on President Johnson. They're going to end up in a massive gut fight in the Democratic Party on this thing. Are they? It's a, there's some uh, very... But also massive against the war. Against the war. Luke, let's let's unpack this a little bit. Um, a few questions come out of these, uh, come out of this specific conversation. Um, 
how were the Pentagon Papers ultimately leaked, just to kind of start off? Well, it, it, so this conversation occurred on June 13th, uh, 1971. Um, and that was the very first day uh, that they were leaked, that, that, they, they, that a portion of the Pentagon Papers were published uh, in the New York Times. Uh, it, it, it was a process of about 18 months that led up to that. And this is part of the story that's never been told. Um, the, for example, the FBI was on to Ellsberg uh, in sometime in late 1969 when he was a consultant at RAND, and they had investigated. He, Ellsberg had had uh, numerous um, uh, citations for security violations, failing to lock things up that were classified, uh, improper handling of classified material, taking things home, and the FBI became involved either in late 69 or in January of 70. Um, now, based on what Haig says in the call, the FBI must not have shared its findings with the White House because the FBI was, was definitely on to Ellsberg, had an active file going, at, certainly as of January of 70. And they were investigating it, they were interviewing it, including his kids uh, who, knew, who knew things about it, and presumably the kids passed back to Daniel Ellsberg the fact that somebody was on to him. So Ellsberg obviously continued uh, on the path he was on, even though he must have had some ideas that the FBI was, was on his tail. So I, Ellsberg's, I, you know, his plan, I, I think, I mean, this is, we, we don't know some things. Nixon had a pretty good honeymoon on Vietnam in 69. Um, he said the right things. He was doing the right things. The first troops were withdrawn in the late spring of 69. He met with Chu over the summer in Midway. He appeared to be uh, on the, the right path on the, on the, on the war. That, the honeymoon on Vietnam kind of ended in the fall, around September of 69, when Congress came back from its August recess and really kind of sharpened their critiques of Nixon and the war and by September, October, there's sort of full-blown brawls on the Hill over Vietnam. You have uh, more senators and senior members of Congress calling for the end of combat in, in Vietnam. And it's a, Ellsberg even co-authors uh, in the Washington Post an op-ed um, on October 12th of 69 with five other RAND analysts, very critical of the war on general terms. I mean, these are analysts who carry top-secret clearances and can't divulge certain details. So he, he had made his turn and become more active. And in that fall of 69 window, he was starting to take um, either copy, take them home or copy them on photocopiers at RAND, uh, making an illegal copy and taking his copy home. He had decided to make this available, to leak it somehow. Um, he, he, he offered it to members of Congress, including Senator Goodell, Senator Fulbright. And as far as we know, they didn't want anything to do with it. They just wanted to stay out of this. Um, he had offered it to pre the press, and they were also very slow to act because everyone understood this was, this was a pretty hot thing to publish and make available. I mean, 7,000 pages, and it, really a whole history of the war going back to World War II uh, with the French and American assistance to the French. Um, it was classified top secret, all 7,000 pages of it were. So this was a, a, a pretty, uh, sort of unprecedented, in, in, even in this day and age today, when leaks of classified material enabled by 
uh, electronic transfers and and WikiLeaks have become more common where large volumes of material can be easily leaked. So there was a long process that led up to this. And and finally, uh, the New York Times decided to start to publish it in installments on June 13th, uh, the date of this phone call, where obviously, uh, I mean, presidents don't have time to sit around and read the newspaper from cover to cover, um, where Haig lets Nixon know uh, that the New York Times has started publication. Haig is... Um... In his conversation, he says that they've been holding it for a juicy time, um, and I think they've thrown it out to affect Hatfield McGovern. Uh, what is Haig referring to here? This is interesting. Cause I'm not sure what to think about this. Um, I think there's some truth to it, but there's also some facts. Because what I've discovered is that the FBI had known about this for a while, I'm not sure he's right about this, but he might be. So, Beginning with this, the end of sort of Nixon's honeymoon in the fall of '69, more senators were calling for a withdrawal, for an end of the war, for a withdrawal of American troops, a unilateral withdrawal, and to allow. They, they did. They, they frankly didn't seem very concerned that the effect of the withdrawal probably would be the toppling of our of Saigon, uh, our ally uh, in uh, South Vietnam, and a takeover by the communists in the north. Their point, as far as I understand it, is primarily end the war as quickly as we can, um, and the concern was for Americans, not for South Vietnamese. One of the efforts on the Hill that got the most attraction um, in terms of using senatorial procedure to try to end the war was co-authored by two senators, Hatfield and McGovern. And in, 19, in the 1970 fiscal year, so again, this all builds up after the fall of 69, in the seven, uh, 1970 Appropriations Act, they tried to tie an amendment named for them, the two authors, Hatfield and McGovern, um, to, to cause an immediate end to the conflict as of the end of the year 1970. That didn't work. It faced very strong bipartisan opposition. You've got to realize Lyndon Johnson is still alive. A lot of his people are alive. Uh, there was there was bipartisan pushback against this because of course Nick Johnson faced a lot of criticism for the war too and he was eager this was an issue that the the Nixon White House and the Johnson folks worked closely together and certainly the legacies to some degree were were tied on the issue of Vietnam when it didn't work in seventy uh, McGovern and Hatfield renewed the effort for seventy one and so that was coming up again we were getting into kind of appropriations hearing seasons he season at seventy one. Um, so I think that's what Haig was referring to, that um, you know, for the Times to release this uh, when they did would look bad for Vietnam and might give a boost to efforts like Hatfield and McGovern. But that also doesn't square with the fact that the government, or at least the FBI, uh, had known you know this was bubbling near the surface for a period of time. Let's listen to uh, the tape of the same day. This is between President Nixon and Dr. Henry Kissinger. This is after the, the Hague phone call. <laughs> yeah. So from that point of view, it helps us. From the point of view of the relations with Hanoi, it hurts a little because it just shows a further weakening of resolve. Yeah. And a further big issue. I suppose the Times ran it uh, to, to, to try to try to affect the debate this week or something. No question. Well, it, I don't think it's going to have that kind of effect. No, no, because it, in a way, it shows uh, what they've tried to do. I think they outsmarted themselves because they had put themselves 
they had sort of tried to make it Nixon's war. And what this massively proves is that if it's anybody's war, it's Kennedy's and John's. Yeah. So that these Democrats now pleading about uh, where he went wrong. Yeah. Uh, or what we're doing wrong, this graphically shows that, that who, who is responsible for the basic mess. Yeah. So I don't think it's having the effect that they intend. Well, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it, it may not have the effect they intend. The, the thing, though, that Henry, that to me is just unconscionable, this is treasonable action on the part of the bastards that put it out. Exactly. Doesn't it involve secure information, a lot of other things? What kind of what kind of people would do such things? It has the most. It has the highest classification. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's treasonable. There's no question. It's actionable. I'm absolutely certain that this violates all sorts of security laws. What What do we do about it? Don't we ask for? I think I I should talk to Mitchell. Yeah. So that was Nixon and Kissinger. Um, as they this was um in the Hague phone call too, but. Nixon and Kissinger are talking again about um, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara um, and how he commissioned the study um, and how it really affects the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, their legacies, and it doesn't impact the Nixon administration. Um, at least that's, that's what they believe. Um, but w- why do you think they cared about the release of this publication so much? Well, this is a fascinating problem that the Nixon White House had. Um, I mean, as far as I can tell, and, and I've, I've talked to Les Gelb about this, um, you know, they were done editing the report, and, you know, it was in January, I mean, it was finished in the opening weeks of the, of the, of the Nixon presidency, but as far as I know, it didn't involve any content or records uh, from the Nixon White House years. Um, uh, it was it was published not by the government printing office GPO, but it was basically a, a self-published job because they didn't trust anyone to publish it, uh, the copies of it, and um, there were a very limited number of copies. Ron, I mean, one did go to Nixon's Secretary of Defense, Mel Laird. One went to McNamara, who um, had gone on to the, be an official at the World Bank, and I believe he he refused his copy. Um, so it was very tightly controlled. Uh, ran the the organ, you know, the, the contributors, 35 or 40 contributors. Some were uh, currently in government. Some were formerly in government. Some were analysts at places like Rand. Uh, some were current or former military. Some were current or former intelligence officials. It was a broad range of contributors. Um, but there's no doubt that the the context of the study was pre-Nixon. It was really more about sort of how did the, did the United States get into the Vietnam uh, over the course of, say, you know, almost 25 years. I think Nixon's, Nixon had, in history has been tied to the Pentagon Papers, um, in part unfairly, uh, because he happened to be in power when it was leaked. Um, now, the other side of the story, what the critics would say, that Nixon should be tied to it, because, you know, he may either made a promise or at least led critics of the war to believe that he would end the war quickly. Now, you can, you know, reasonable, reasonable people, I think, can debate what it means to end this war quickly. Um, but certainly by the fall of 69, the critics were 
reaching you know a much greater level of concern. I think their hope that he, Nixon could have it resolved in the first year, and so so certainly by seventy one, uh, Nixon was being attached more and more, and, and and of course the longer the war did go on, you know Nixon was going to be attached to the actions of his uh, to his of his predecessors Johnson and Kennedy, who were largely responsible for the, the build up and, and getting the United States into the war. So I think Nixon's concern is, first of all, I've got to preside over this mess. Um, and even if Nixon doesn't want to defend the actions, the specific actions in the war of his predecessors, he's going to defend the presidency uh, from an attack on the presidency, which is what this is, is the challenge to the authority of the president to keep secrets. Um, and so I think that's the first issue. The second issue was dealing with criticism like Hatfield McGovern and Nixon's ongoing ability to conduct the war and manage the war as it went on. I think then you have a third issue, which a lot of people in 1971 didn't know about at all, which was, you know, we have negotiations going on with North Vietnam. To, we're still in the, in, the war, in the war that's being documented in the study. Uh, we've got negotiations going on with China and the Soviet Union, and there's a public aspect to each of these negotiations. Uh, for example, the Paris peace talks in, in our public in, in Paris with North Vietnam. But privately, it's a whole other matter where talks are much more disciplined and where things really can't leak and where trust has to be built up with both sides for the talks to continue. So Nixon's other concern that he alludes to here in terms of trouble this could cause with Hanoi is if, if you're negotiating with someone and something in the press causes you to change your mind or change a policy, such as the Pentagon Papers could possibly do, uh, as this conversation was taking place, then when you go to your next negotiating session with Hanoi or with, with Beijing or with Moscow, how are they going to believe anything you say? How are they going to believe you're going to keep secrets? How are they going to believe that you're not going to go back against your word? How are they going to believe that the New York Times isn't going to get a hold of the next secret and, and broadcast it to the world? So I think in terms of, you know, operationally, in terms of ongoing policy, I think absolutely was what Nixon was focused on. Do you think he, on that note, do you think he was all worried about the idea that a precedent for leaks um, could derail the China initiative? Could it derail a summit with Moscow? On, the, on some other tapes, he does say that. I mean, of course, these are what-if questions, so we don't really know. Um, you know, it's been said many times throughout, throughout, throughout the Cold War, the Soviet Union re didn't quite understand that the U.S. press was independent. You know, they thought at times the New York Times was a mouthpiece for the government. And, well, it probably is sometimes. But in this case, I mean, this is clearly uh, the, press, the press was flexing its First Amendment muscles uh, against the Nixon White House. Um, and so, you know, I think it would take a, a sophisticated view on the part of Hanoi or Beijing or Moscow about, about what freedom of the press means. Uh, and here, after all, these are countries that didn't have freedom of the press. And so it's hard to know exactly what they thought. I think to know for sure whether that was a true concern is we'd have to know the mindset of the leaders in Beijing, Hanoi, or Moscow at the time. And I don't think we really know that. But on other tapes, Nixon does say that is a primary concern, is it's one thing to let top secret documents be printed in the press. It was another thing entirely for this to affect current and even future government policy. I think that, again, was the focus of, of, of Nixon's concerns. You had mentioned that as the war went on, um, Nixon 
there was a concern within the Nixon administration that his policies might have been connected with uh, the Johnson or the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Was there a fear, was there an overarching fear that the release of these papers might erode uh, public support for the war? That's, I mean, that's hard to say. Um, I don't think Nixon really focuses much on that, at least in, according to the tapes, according to the evidence that I've seen. Um, now, on the other hand, you know, anybody can look up uh, Gallup poll numbers for Nixon. Uh, you can look up kind of um, just kind of public sentiment at the time in 70, 71. These were rough years for Nixon. I mean, these were, I mean, other than the final, say, 13 months of his presidency in 73, 74, 70, 71, were, this was probably the toughest time for him. I mean, it's easy in 2019 to look back and say, well, come on. I mean, a year later in 72, he was reelected in a 49-state landslide, one of the greatest landslides in, in American political history. But in 70 and 71, you know, whether you look at public sentiment, Gallup polls, um, just kind of whether his policies, his foreign policy were getting off the ground, it not only it not only didn't look like Nixon was going to win um, in a landslide, it didn't look like he was going to win at all. And it's around this time on some other tapes, Nixon talks about not running for re-election. He talks about not wanting uh, to be the second president to be victimized by a war, uh, referencing Johnson's decision in 68 not to run for re-election, uh, in part due to uh, the, the public's opinion over the Vietnam War. Um, so this was, these were pretty bleak days for Nixon and Kissinger in 7071, prior to the China Initiative getting off the ground that summer, prior to uh, SALT-1 taking off later in the fall of 71, um, prior to really the spring of 72 and the Easter Offensive really making headway with negotiations with North Vietnam to get us out of the war. You, you have to look at it in the context of the time where this kind of hits Nixon at a, at a low period. Some have, historians have suggested that Nixon could have been concerned about the leaking of other classified information uh, detrimental to him and his administration um, after, this, after this leak of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, do you believe there's any credence in this allegation? Oh, I think there's, there's absolute credence to the fact that, um, you know, you can hear it in the Hague conversation. Um, you know, here it is. You have you know the the, the June thirteenth issue uh, of the New York Times right on the cover. You, you can look at the cover. Um, you can go look at it today on the New York Times website, the Times Machine, and pull up the exact image of the the front page. And above the fold, um, there are two major stories. On the one side of the paper, it's it's the the it's Trisha Nixon's wedding to Ed Cox the previous weekend at the White House and the image of her in her, her gown. Um, and then the other part is the first installment in this leak of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, it's being published on the same day. I mean, what, what a day for news on the front page of the, the paper. And so I think, you know, there's a very legitimate concern for Nixon. You can hear it in the conversation with Haig, where we need the facts. How many, and, and it's clear they don't have the facts. This catches them by surprise. Again, even though, as I say, the FBI had it in their files, and the FBI, in the FBI files that I've seen, uh, the Air Force is aware of this, and a few other agencies that did some own internal investigations, and either this information wasn't shared with the White House 
or it was, and it just wasn't on anybody's radar. It was overlooked in terms of importance until it blew up like a bomb on June 13th, 1971. So I think first and foremost, uh, there's a real panic for getting the facts. How many copies of this thing are out there? Who has them? What other things do they have? If they have this, how many other RANs involved in all kinds of projects? MIT, where Ellsberg was at the time, was involved in all kinds of other projects for the government. Um, so I think there's an immediate concern for who else has this and what else do they have. I think that's a very realistic reaction that Nixon has, and I think that's uh, foremost in his mind. The next audio is from the following day, Monday, June 14th, 1971. Uh, this is between Attorney General John Mitchell and the President and how to react uh, to the news reports following the release. So, Mr. President, what is your advice on that uh, time thing, John? Uh, you would you would like to do it? Uh, I would believe so, Mr. President. Otherwise, we will look a little foolish in not following through on our legal obligations. And uh, has this ever been done before? Uh, publication like this, or no, no, no. Have you, have, have, has the government ever done this to a paper before? Oh yes, advising of their. Oh, yes, we've done this before. Have we? All right. Yes, sir. Uh, I would think that. How, how do you go about it? You do it sort of low key. Low key. You call them and then uh, send a telegram to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And say that we're just uh, we're examining the situation, and we just simply are putting you on notice. Well, we're putting them on notice that they're violating a statute because yeah. we have a communication from yeah. Mel Laird as to the nature of the documents, right. and they fall within right. the statute. Now, right. I don't know whether you've been noticed it, but this thing was uh, Mel was working. Henry Henry's on the other. I just he just walked in. I'll put him on the other line. Go ahead. Uh, Mel uh, had a pretty good go up there before the committee today on it, and it's all over town and all over everything, and I think we'd look a little silly if we just didn't take this low-key action of advising them about the publication. Did Mel take a fairly uh, hard line on it? Uh, yes, he <laughs> gave a legal opinion, and it was a violation of the law, which of well. course puts us up. Yeah, we have to get. Well, to look, look. As far as the Times is concerned, hell, they're our enemies. I think we just ought to do it. And anyway, uh, Henry, tell them what you just heard from Rostow. Well, Rostow called on behalf of Johnson, and he said that it is Johnson's strong view that this is an attack on the whole integrity of government. That if you, that if whole, ca whole file cabinets can be stolen and then made available to the press, uh, you can't have orderly government anymore. Well, and I, he said, if the president defends the integrity, any action we take, he will back publicly. Well, uh, I, I think that we should take this, uh, do some uh, undercover investigation, and then open it up after your McGovern Hatfield. Yeah. Uh, we've got some information we've developed as to where these copies are and who they're likely to... Uh, have leaked them, and the prime suspect, according to your friend Rostow, you're quoting as a gentleman by the name of Ellsberg, who yeah. is a left winger that's now with the Rand Corporation, who also have a set of these documents. Yeah. So. Uh, Subpoena them, Christ, get them. Uh, so I would, I would think that we should advise the Times. We will start our covert check, uh, and after McGovern Hatfield, just open it up. Right. Go ahead. Does that, does that agree with you? Yep. All right, sir. Will do. Yeah. That was um, Kissinger. That was John Mitchell 
uh, calling the president, and uh, Kissinger joined uh, that call as well. Um, Luke, some in our audience, I'm sure, have seen the post starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, who respectively play Washington Post managing editor Ben Bradley and Post owner Captain Graham. Uh, you hear in this audio Attorney General uh, Mitchell say that they could advise the Times that they are breaking a statue, in effect, put them on notice. Uh, what does this ultimately mean uh, for the Nixon administration's policy on the publication of, um, of classified uh, information to America's top newspapers? First, the New York Times. And could you also talk a little bit about how the, Post, the Washington Post uh, got into this as well? Sure. Um, so so the, the New York Times spent a period of months uh, engaging w- prior to publication on June 13, 1971, the first of a number of installments from the Pentagon Papers, the, the Times went through a process of, of, of months um, of uh, internal deliberations, of consulting with their general counsel on, you know, do we do this? If we do, how, you know, how much can we publish? And I believe it's correct that the general counsel's office advised the Times not to publish uh, well, they went ahead um, on June 13th, and the reaction of the Nixon administration was the, the Department of Justice sought an injunction against the Times uh, against further publication of anything from the Pentagon Papers um, until the matter could be decided you know, in the court. Um, and initially, in the Southern District of New York, the district court, uh, it, it, the the district court took a kind of pro-government view um, that, you know, there are limits on how much the press can publish in the way of classified information. But obviously this, was the, this wasn't going to settle the matter. It was going to be appealed further. Uh, well, the, the Post, um, the Washington Post starts to also publish a ser- its own series um, within the week, joined by a number of other newspapers across the country who I think felt that they were joining um, the matter in order to support their their brother, the New York Times, and and after all, you know, once an unlimited number of papers start to publish these, surely the government can't come after them all. I think that was the thinking. So the Post started several days later, and um, the 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 uh, Nixon administration sought a similar injunction in Washington District Court against the Post uh, in its decision, so, so they couldn't publish any further. And this is where the case gets interesting because. The district court in Washington goes the other way, um, not to say that the government has an unlimited right to publish classified information, but it, 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 the, the court goes against the injunction. And so now you've got a split situation. And so it has to go to the Court of Appeals in Washington and then ultimately the Supreme Court in late June of 71. Um, and, you know, so, so ultimately what happens is, you know, the, the, the fil- this film was made about the Post, um, but it was really the New York Times uh, that uh, took a lot of the risk to start get the ball rolling. I think you know there's a saying among uh, there's a saying in history that a lot of history is not for the past. Its purpose is really for the present, and I think that could be the case with the film you know the post because the film came out at a time when you know, you know there were these comparisons being drawn between Nixon and President Trump. Um, comparisons between uh, their relationship with the media being contentious. And, you know, I think it, in my own view, you know, the film The Post came out at a time um, to boost the Washington Post and its role in the subject uh, that, um, that it, I mean, it didn't, 
it really, I think if, even if you're on the side, if you're a critic of the Pentagon Papers, you're a critic of the war, you're a critic of Nixon, uh, to me, I think it really should have been the Times that was showcased because they were the ones that were really involved in this issue and, and did the difficult work prior to other papers that joined. I mean, the earlier papers decided not to publish. It was the Times that decided to pull the lever and start the, print, the, the, the Pentagon Papers. So the, the Nixon administration's response is first to seek an injunction uh, while the courts decide. Ultimately, you know, the case winds all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court decides this on June 30th of 1971, issues a very, very limited opinion where it, you know, so you have lots of issues involved here because you have the Espionage Act, you have the First Amendment, you have issues of government secrecy. You've got lots of really complicated issues all wrapped up in this. And as the court sometimes does, it issues a very, very limited, narrow ruling that basically said it agreed with lower courts, um, that lower court rejections of the injunction that the Nixon administration sought against publication. And it really tried to stay out of espionage and treason and First Amendment. And so this has been widely heralded as this dramatic First Amendment case that allowed almost an unlimited First Amendment and almost unlimited ability of the press to publish classified information and just a, a stunning defeat for the Nixon administration. But if you actually read the very brief opinion, it's pretty limited. And it, it, it's kind of more to me saying that the Supreme Court just doesn't really want to get involved. Um, and it does allow the times to proceed um, but the Times itself doesn't print everything. It kind of, the, even the Times would say that it didn't publish what it thought were the most sensitive matters. So I think what actually happened has been remembered differently in kind of the public opinion in films like The Post. Uh, so as I say, I think the, the, a proper history of this, in a, in a way, hasn't really been written, a kind of balanced history, because I think the details, there are a lot of details, and I think leaving them out uh, not only is, is, is significant, but I think leaving that, including them, makes it a lot more, of, I think, a much more interesting story. In this conversation, John Mitchell said, I think we should advise the Times, put them on notice in effect. Um, and then he says, we will start a covert check and after McGovern Hatfield, just open it up. Um, what is he referring to? Um, what is Mitchell referring to in terms of a covert check? Well, I'm not certain. Um, my, my guess, um, you know, rereading it a couple times and listening to it, is what he's trying to do is, you know, so it's based on a couple of ideas. So if the assumption is that the, that the New, York, New, York, New York Times and other newspapers um, are publishing excerpts in the Pentagon Papers to A, discredit the war, and B, boost the critics of the war on the Hill who are passing appropriations bills and possibly amendments like Hatfield and McGovern to suddenly bring an end to American involvement in the war. Um, what I think what Mitchell's suggesting is if they're going to use this for political purposes, what we ought to do on our side is, is discredit that and, and figure out, you know, how many people who are unauthorized have copies of this? How has it been mishandled? How has it already been used and misused for political purposes by senators, by the press, by critics of the war, uh, conduct an investigation, and then, you know, if this comes to pass, as we think it might, in other words, if this is referenced in debates over the war, if this is referenced during another McGovern-Hatfield amendment, which was 
presumably going to be introduced again, as it was in 70, uh, then if they're going to go that route, then we're going re- to reveal what we found, all the ways this has been abused and mishandled uh, by the critics of the war. So I think that's what he means, is start an invest- <clears throat> internal investigation and just have it ready in case we need to use it. In the last podcast, we talked about the you know, the concept of leaking uh, during the Yeoman-Radford affair. Um, in recent times, uh, both in the Trump uh, Justice Department and the Obama Justice Department as well, we see a aggressive uh, treatment of, uh, of leakers. Um, on, the, on, the, on that side of things, what does the Nixon administration, how do they want to handle um, people, who, people like Daniel Ellsberg? Um, do they decide to prosecute them? Um, do they decide to leave this alone? How, how, how is how is the how are the leakers treated within the Nixon administration? Yeah, I mean this is this, this is the most prominent one. You know, not just during the the Nixon year. I mean, you could go there. There were there was Beecher leaks and there were uh, more Radford leaks. I mean, it seems like in in the modern day and age, and by that I guess you could say since the Cold War, since the uh, since the invention of the modern photocopier, since that's where a lot of these things get get uh, duplicated, in, in the modern age, um, it seems that this is a, an increasing issue for every uh, president, regardless of of where they sit politically, regardless of political party. Um, and I think each one is kind of unique. I mean, even as precedent is built, um, you know, you look at some of the big ones, whether it's it's Chelsea Manning, it's Edward Snowden. Um, I mean, they all have kind of unique elements to them. Um, and so, in, 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 at least in the case of Ellsberg, um, so after the Supreme Court decides that the injunctions can't stand and that uh, the presses have at least a limited right to publish war uh, information about the war, even if it's classified, the, the, there are charges filed against Ellsberg to, to try to make him personally responsible. Um, see, in these conversations we listen to, they suspect Ellsberg's involved, but they don't know that he was the one who was not the only one, but probably the, the leader of a group who ultimately you know, leaked the copy that the New York Times published. So ultimately, they thought there was a better chance, you know, don't go after the First Amendment, don't go after the presses, go after Ellsberg personally. And so Ellsberg was, uh, was uh, uh, you know, he faced a possible 115 years in prison under, under, under the Espionage Act. The case went to trial um, uh, in in early '73, um, and uh, I mean the American the sentiment was, and Amer- I think American public sentiment was very divided then as I think now uh, on these kinds of issues. On the one hand, I think many Americans believe um, in legitimate secrecy, but they also believe that secrecy can go too far sometimes. So in the Pentagon Papers, I think. Are, you know, are illustrative of the fact that uh, people did start to believe the government had misled them uh, about the war, um, and but that you know there shouldn't be a wholesale ability to steal government secrets, to reproduce them, to sell them, etc. Uh, if we can do that, then then you know then what would stop someone like this? To me, I mean, how many degrees further is it? Instead of offering them to the New York Times, do you offer them to the Soviet Union? You know, or to another adversary around the world. So I think there are limits, but it's a real test of you know. Every, we all say there, there. You know, free speech is unlimited. We all like free speech, but how far can you go? I mean, you can't yell fire in a theater. 
you know, you, there are certain things you still can't go. There, there are customs, there are morals, and we can all disagree over what these things mean and how far we would go personally. But society still has to be regulated in some way. In the case of Ellsberg, they brought charges against him. The trial started in 73. Ultimately, it was unraveled. Um, now, Ellsberg, again, in popular lore, this has been painted as he was found innocent. Um, it, it's more complicated than that. Uh, once the trial began, um, the, uh, the, the truth came out about uh, the, the plumbers, this, white, this sort of internal White House investigator, investigatory team had broken into the psych- Ellsberg psych- psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding. Um, it, it, then a second, the second disclosure that Ellsberg had been in, inadvertently, as far as we can tell, picked up on some wiretaps of some other officials. And it wasn't the fact that these occurred, I don't think, the break-in and the wiretaps. It was that the prosecution, the government, um, against Ellsberg didn't share this information with the defense. And so ultimately the charges were dismissed against Ellsberg on account of, you want to call it government misconduct, prosecutorial incompetence, uh, or the fact that Ellsberg probably couldn't have faced a fair trial. I mean, let's be clear about that anywhere in the country. So ultimately, the charges were dismissed against him uh, because of the government's conduct during the case when these these uh, other discoveries were made. So I think that's how it was handled in this case. Um, but you, you know, again, you look at the others: Chelsea Manning. You look at more recently WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden. You know, each there's precedent established each time, but I think the precedent has limited um, importance, limited relevance, even because the the circumstances can be so unique each time one of these dramatic. Um, big leaks uh, occurs. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to the case of the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda. Belinda.